Welcome to BPR Radio's series on media ownership and polarization. In this second episode, we spoke with Dr. Robert McChesney, professor of communication at the University of Illinois and author of several books on media and politics. We discussed how the historic decline in advertising revenue influenced media coverage in the U.S., the extent to which newspapers and cable news networks represent public opinion, and what could be done to remedy the rising levels of political polarization seen in the U.S. today. Was that it was dominated, journalism was dominated by daily newspapers. They provided the lion's share of local journalism. Uh, they were tended to be extremely profitable. Uh, they were monopolies in most cities in a way that some, an undergraduate at Brown could barely imagine the power and importance of a newspaper. Uh, broadcast news, such as it was, uh, basically, when you watch TV news, you were basically getting them reading the headlines from the morning paper. Mm-hmm. And national news, if you want to know what was going to be on the national news on NBC or ABC or CBS, all you had to do is have the front page, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You pretty much knew what stories were going to be covered. So it, difficult to exaggerate the importance of daily newspapers setting the tone for American journalism. Uh, and... That remained true. In, it's still true today, actually, but it was uh, true, powerfully true, uh, until this century. I mean, that was how it always was. Newspapers was the name of the game. Um, and now that was a, a not a great system. I don't want to romanticize that system. Uh, the professional journalism that existed as a result uh, in that period, and it existed for much of the 20th century, was one where legitimate professional journalism was uh, determined by what elites were debating, basically. So the range of debate was what Democrats and Republicans said was a legitimate issue. Mm-hmm. So all sorts of issues that historians say this is the most important issue of the time were off limits uh, at that time. And that remains true today. So, for example, uh, if you look at the discussion of the war in Vietnam, uh, there was barely any critical analysis of the efforts to start that war uh, in the 1950s and early 1960s. And that was when there were members of Congress, esteemed members who opposed the war, but even they were marginalized uh, because most elites basically were in favor of that war. Uh, most elites then as now thought that the United States has a sacred right to invade any country it wants at any time. That wasn't negotiable. Um, So they accepted that. That was never debated. The question was whether it was a good invasion or not, whether it was an appropriate invasion. But that the United States was allowed to cherry pick which governments they liked and which they didn't, that power was never challenged. Mm -hmm. And that remains true today. The uh, probably the least debated but most important issue, and there's a lot of them, uh, certainly for American politicians, would be the size of the defense budget. Uh, Pentagon budget, which is $800 billion a year, which gets less attention probably than the most minute part of the budget in anything dealing with social welfare. Right. Uh, I mean, just not discussed at all. Both parties sign, wave it through, try to increase it. They're like playing a game of poker where they're raising the stakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, intellectually, we know that's ridiculous. That should be the most debated issue in our budget. Yeah. It should be examined. People say, what the heck's going on here? Mm-hmm. But because the cues of professional journalism in the United States since the 20th century have primarily drawn the range of legitimate debate as what elites are debating among themselves, if they agree on something, like 
the military budget, the role of the United States, the role, that's off limits. That's not debated in journalism. It's never written about because none of the sources that journalists depend on are talking about that as a, as a viable issue. That's just for you know crackpots and kooks and weirdos, but not for real Americans uh, who are mature understanders of the American system. So, okay. uh, so even at its best, our journalism had its flaws. Now, it also had a lot of strengths in that period. For one thing, it was fairly lucrative. Um, newspaper, daily newspapers accounted for 1% of the GDP of the country in 1960. Now, that seemed 1% was that. That's $1 out of 100 in the country was getting to do a daily newspaper. And what that means is that there were uh, large newsrooms in every city in the country, oftentimes more than one or two, covering that community. So if you were to go, where are you from? What's your hometown? Um, I'm originally from the UK. Oh, no, you lost your accent. <laughs> um, so, okay, well, let's say you've lived in um, um, Providence. Mm -hmm. Providence has actually one time had a great daily newspaper uh, in the 1950s by American standards. Mm -hmm. But any, you know, Providence had probably two other newspapers until then, and then it whittled down to one. But it had a huge newsroom, and it employed some great reporters who did some really path-breaking work. Uh, so, and they, they didn't do it on military spending, but they did it on other things. There were still subjects, when elites are debating something, it's fair game. So civil rights became a legitimate issue. Mm -hmm. It was more or less off limits in Northern newspapers prior to the 1960s. But once it became a, a major political issue, uh, then suddenly reporters could take the gloves off and start really looking closely at race relations and racism in the United States and produce some great journalism as a result. So we have... The journalism was not perfect. It had, it had fundamental structural flaws, but at the same time, there was a lot of it. If you lived in a community, they were covering the school boards, they were covering the city council. If there was corruption, they would have someone covering it oftentimes, unless the corrupt people got away with it uh, and hit it really well. Mm -hmm. um, and so people felt basically there was, they lived in a community that had an idea of what was happening, be it in Providence or Brooklyn or Cleveland, Ohio, where I was from, or a small town. A town of 50,000 people. Um, and the great change in our journalism to get us into the 21st century in the moment we're at today is that starting slowly in the 1980s and 1990s, as the industry became more and more consolidated, there were cutbacks in the number of reporters. Mm -hmm. um, then by the early 20th century, uh, with the internet and social media, the entire advertising model of supporting journalism collapsed. And what I mean by that is that in the 20th century, um, between 60 and 80% of a newspaper's uh, revenues came from advertising. Advertising is what made it a profitable institution. Right. And that was the foundation. No medium has ever been able to support itself just by subscriptions. No newspaper, certainly. It has to have advertising. And with the rise of the Internet, by 2005, with social media and ubiquitous surveillance that was perfected online, um, advertisers realized they didn't have to support journalism anymore. They didn't have to pay a lot of money for ads. Uh, that A lot of the money is just wasted on people who weren't in the market for their product, and they were bankrolling the reporters in that community. They could go directly online. Instead of placing ads on a medium, they would just go to Google or Facebook or AOL and say, this is my product. What's, you know, I want to reach the target audience's product. And those companies would say, yeah, we know exactly who you want to reach. We know, we know everything about our audience. We will let you run targeted ads just to the people in the market for your product that you mm -hmm. want to get. No one else. 
And if you're an advertiser, you say, great, I'm jumping ship. Why should I be bankrolling newspapers? That's, 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 screw that. Yeah. And as a result, advertising has virtually disappeared in the last 10 years in newspapers, um, overwhelmingly. So that um, less than one-tenth of the amount is a percentage of GDP that was spent on newspapers uh, in 1960 is spent today. And one one sixth of what was spent just 20 years ago, or one seventh, it's basically a dead industry. And we have all across America a new concept, a new term called a news desert, and that refers to areas, counties, cities, towns that have no paid reporters covering them whatsoever, mm-hmm. none, zero. And then if you loosen it up just to say it's so few reporters they can't cover anything, they're basically just getting press releases and printing them up. Uh, the news testers cover much of the country, and soon they'll cover pretty much the whole country. And that's where the dilemma is in our politics today. Uh, the issue you wanted to talk about goes right out of that. Because most Americans have no idea what the fuck is going on in their community anymore, and they have no way of knowing. They really are clueless. Even people who consider themselves really engaged citizens, people of my generation or political junkies, it's really hard to follow because there aren't any reporters covering anything in most cities, like Providence. I doubt there's much journalism left there. Uh, and so what happens to politics then? What happens to politics when you don't have reporters, when you aren't covering anything? Well, this leads to back to national news, which feeds off local news. And the solution to that product was provided by Rupert Murdoch, who um, uh, cut his teeth in Australia and the UK before he brought his talents to the United States. And what Rupert Murdoch did is he started a news channel on television in the 1990s, Fox News, which is, of course, now iconic. And people oftentimes think the genius of Fox News was that it, it identified as a right-wing news service, so where conservatives and Republicans would go there, and they would know that's where they would get the party line. To be, it would be their Pravda. They could zero into that and always get the party line taken on any issue, and never have to worry about cognitive dissonance, something happening that sort of would upset their worldview they couldn't right. explain. Um, but that really wasn't the genius of what Murdoch did. The genius was Murdoch realized. Um, that the way to make money in journalism wasn't to have no reporters, do no actual journalism. But if you do no actual journalism, you have no reporters, no one's going to watch your show unless you give them something. He said, well, it's a lot cheaper to get celebrity blowhards, uh, go on the air and pontificate a handful of right-wing talking points uh, and give the people what they want. And they won't even notice they're not getting any news because they'll be bombarded with all this sort of analysis of whatever the talking point of the day is and all the hosts will say the same thing it'll all fit together you go to bed feeling really good about how you know what you love and what you hate about america Mm. and the same thing to a a lesser extent but not that much lesser is more or less what's happened at cnn and msnbc they don't really have the budgets to do journalism either their budgets have been slashed so in the sort of they've filled the void that Fox doesn't care about, which is Democrats. And they both said, that's our target audience. And if you watch MSNBC, there's usually three stories a day they cover, same as CNN. And every show talks about the same issue. You learn nothing new. It's like the old joke they used to say about left-wing meetings. Um, Everything's been said, but not everyone said it. And uh, so it's just people endlessly each hour talking more about the same thing giving the same talking points. Um, and now I find them less offensive than Fox because I consider the political right in this country to be fascist today. I think that, right. and I, I think that's a very scary trend uh, for this country and for the world. 
but nonetheless, what they do is not that much different. You don't learn much about the world watching either of those networks. There's a handful of inside baseball talking point issues they emphasize, and you're going to get the Democratic Party position. So they aren't going to talk about military spending. They're not going to talk about whether we should be overthrowing a government in this country or that, because the Democratic Party, like the Republicans, all agree on that issue. So they're not doing great journalism. They're not trailblazing anything. And one of the problems they face is that it used to be television journalism mooched off of uh, local news, you know, and it wasn't just national local news. I mean, I mean, again, for someone um, uh, of an undergraduate, they wouldn't understand this, but 30, 40, 50 years ago, the top dozen or two dozen newspapers in the United States each had a full bureau in Washington, D.C. So the Baltimore Sun, the Boston Globe, the L.A. Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Atlanta News, um, all these papers had bureaus with editors and reporters in Washington covering it. So there were all these people actually covering the town. So if you were doing an MSNBC, you'd have, you know, 100 different newsrooms or 50 different newsrooms to look to see what they're doing and have them on air discussing their stories. Well, now if you watch those shows, you realize there's, hard, there's like five people they call on or five institutions because all those bureaus are closed now. They don't exist. They're simply not there. In the, United, in the United States today, the New York Times has probably the similar control over national news coverage as uh, Pravda did in the old Soviet Union. I mean, it's all alone. It's the last place standing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Washington Post covers D.C. as like, like the way the L.A. Times would cover Hollywood. It's a local industry. And the Wall Street Journal does some great journalism still. Uh, but it covers everything ultimately from the perspective of the people who own the country. And while that they have to know some honest facts, they're basically not especially concerned with the people who don't own the country, who work for the people who own the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, that's the state of our journalism today. It's, it's in free fall descent. It's in collapse. And it tends, because it doesn't do journalism, it tends to be more likely to pick a side Democrat or Republican, and just use their talking points and go go with them uh, and stoke the fires of their uh, uh, followers and their viewers. Mm-hmm. And specifically when it comes to sort of media trust, um, you were mentioning sort of these, uh, you know, massive, you know, cable news networks nowadays not focusing on local news. Um is that like one of the biggest reasons why Americans distrust the media so much? Why people think that it's in the hands of the elites? Is, 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 is it because, you know, it just doesn't focus on aspects of their daily life that's relevant to them? Or is it something to do with like how the networks hire people and the fact that those people sort of in terms of their political ideology don't represent Americans? You know... It's very hard to answer that because you're trying to presume you know what goes on in people's minds. So it's a dangerous territory to get into. Um, So you can basically just sort of have suppositions and try to consider they hold water and you can look historically to see if they had worked. You know, trust in media in one sense, in one perfect sense, makes absolutely perfect sense. If someone trusted what exists as news media in the United States today, you'd have to think they're a blithering idiot. I mean, you'd have to be, how can you possibly trust something that doesn't exist? Mm. You know, what, what, what do you trust in the journalism of Providence, Rhode Island, or New Bedford, Massachusetts, or Worcester, Mass, to take nearby towns, or Hartford? There isn't any. Yeah. So, so yeah, I really trust my media. <laughs> what are you talking about, pal? What, what are you trusting? Some guy in a bar stool? <laughs> uh, so it, 
it makes perfect sense you wouldn't trust something that doesn't exist or that what does exist is so shallow and there are some great people trying to do journalism but instead of having 300 covering providence Rhode island you've got 12. you know good luck doing a good job when you your numbers are shrunk by that number or i'm just pulling those numbers out of the air it might be different uh, mm -hmm. but that principle holds uh, in city after city every city in the country so and and then a, trusted media is going to go down at the national media which has become sort of the substitute media msnbc cnn and fox is now sort of the stand-in for media basically mm. um if they've taken partisan positions well you know you trust sort of trust it but you know it's it would it would be a lot more trustworthy if there's actually doing journalism if it wasn't just sort of doing talking points and have talking heads talking to people giving them talking points right and so interestingly, you know, you're mentioning how these corporations are, well, they're, um, I think you mentioned that sort of their, uh, their budgets were being cut or something like that, but they're still, you know, ex like Fox, for example, is still extremely profitable and its viewership, um, or at least its program is growing. Um, and this is interesting because the popularity of Fox News is actually decreasing. Uh, so ever since Biden was elected, um, fewer and fewer people have been watching Fox. And actually all the major networks have declined in terms of the viewership. So how do you reconcile the fact that these corporations are still extremely profitable with the fact that they're extremely unpopular? Well, I mean, let's back up first. It's like, who is profitable 30 years ago compared to who's profitable today? 30 years ago, 40 years ago, news media, people doing journalism, right? This, this is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Included companies like, you know, Knight, Ritter, Gannett, that were spectacularly profitable. They're all out of business now. So we're talking about, oh yeah, they're still making money. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of people doing propaganda raking it in mm -hmm. with no reporters. And we're like, yeah, see, you can still make money. You can make money doing propaganda on national television. That's it. Mm -hmm. if, that's, if that means journalism is still kicking ass, well, our definition of journalism is worthless. Mm -hmm. uh, that if, I mean, journalism is dead as a field. All these companies are in the graveyard. When they tried to sell some of the most important newspaper chains in America, like McClatchy, um, they couldn't find any buyers anywhere. They end up getting sold to hedge funds who strip them for parts. They can't find anyone who wants to t vote, invest in these companies to do journalism, local journalism. They've given up. It's impossible. The verdict is in. Uh, so that's why most people live in ignorance. It's also why... When you have uh, statewide political races, like we just had in Virginia recently, a gubernatorial race mm -hmm. uh, that the Republicans won, the issues in that race had almost nothing really to do with the state. They were all talking points from the, the national cable networks. Because mm -hmm. most people in the state have no idea what's going down in their state. Believe it or not, and someone your age and have every reason not to know this, it used to be until quite recently that when there was a governor's race in any given state, it was actually about what was going on in that state. Right. It wasn't about what you thought about Donald Trump mm -hmm. uh, or, or cancel culture mm -hmm. or critical race theory. That had nothing to do with how you were voting for governor. And voting for governor, you were looking at the issues in your state, which you knew something about because you have media which told you something about them. Now most people have no idea what's going on in their state. Mm -hmm. But the it, special interest do, the people who own the state know, and they're, they're enjoying it. Right. But do you think that's um, do you think that's a question of how the networks are framing the race? So if, I actually did see a segment on this on the race, but I don't remember the candidates' names. Uh, but there was a segment I think on MSNBC 
um, that sort of blamed Biden's uh, pullout of Afghanistan for the Democrats' loss in Virginia, sort of saying that um, the Democratic candidate had been in support of the pullout and of how reckless it was. Uh, is that just a question of how these networks are framing the race, or is it actually um, a question of like uh, sort of uh, is that a question of like how the networks are framing the race and the fact that there's actually no local issues being involved in the race, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think that's exactly you've answered the question in your question. Um, mm. <laughs> the idea that people in Virginia woke up and said, "Oh, we really love that war in Afghanistan. That was that we've been kicking ass for twenty years. Let's go. Let's see if we can go for a hundred and top England's hundred years war." You know, the idea that the people woke up some morning in Virginia and said, this is, I, because there's, I'm going to vote against this Democrat because these are the same parties, the guy who ended this 20-year war. Uh, there might be some people who did that. I won't say they're wrong. But the idea that that would move them is, is preposterous, I think, on its face. And, but if it is true, then I think it is a statement about the fact there is no local journalism. That becomes an issue that defines the governor's race. The governor has no influence whatsoever over foreign policy, the military, it's a state government. Exactly. You know, he's not going to send the state police to Afghanistan to invade it. Uh, so it, it, any way you slice that issue, it's a ludicrous issue uh, that calls for examining, you know, what, what exactly is the media diet people are getting. Um, but that's a standard thing that the news media likes to do. They like to explain why something takes place. And this is part of the reason this country's gone so far to the political right, which is the you know, I think the dominant trend globally, really, right now, worldwide, is the rise of fascism and anti-authoritarianism, and regrettably, in a way that would have been unthinkable of, uh, two decades ago, is now ascendant in the United States in a frightening manner. Mm -hmm. um, for years, the Republicans would win congressional elections and off-year elections, like in 2010, after Obama won president in 2008, they won a big election to... Uh, take control of the House and the Senate, uh, have Republican majorities. Same thing happened in 2014. Uh, they won the House and the Senate in an off year after Obama won re-election in 2012. And the news media all accepted the Republican framing. Republicans said, well, yep, this means they want balanced budgets. They, they want um, cut taxes on rich people to create jobs. They defined it as, as their agenda. So this is why they voted for us. Mm -hmm. And the evidence of that was really thin. I mean, exactly that, that what motivated those are the issues that drove people, that they were concerned about that. But that's how the Republicans framed it. Cause, and the, the truth of the matter was that uh, the one thing we know for sure in both those elections, as will be the, probably the case in 2022, the number of people who voted went down sharply from the previous presidential election. Mm -hmm. And most of the people who just didn't vote in the off year, 2010 and 2014, as will be the case in 2022, were Democrats. So it wasn't like Democrats switched over and said, yeah, I really want to balance the budget now and, and give tax breaks to billionaires. No, they just didn't vote. They were alienated. They didn't think that Obama produced enough, and he didn't uh, either term. Uh, and so they just said, screw that. I'll vote to keep the Republicans up, but, you know, I'm not going to get off my butt and vote. Mm. These guys haven't done anything. That seems like a more plausible explanation. Uh, but the reason why that is so interesting is that Donald Trump's genius, such as it is, was that he would go out and talk to these Republican audiences 
And if he mentioned something like, hey, let's go balance the budget, you know, people would like, he said, hey, let's get rid of some red tape. Let's get rid of public education. But if he said, hey, let's go fucking lock up some Mexicans and rapists, you know, let's beat the shit out of some guy, black guys giving you a lip. And the crowd's going nuts. <laughs> Donald Trump said, they, they don't give a shit about this other stuff. All they care, they want some red meat. Mm. And so he gave them what he said, but they wanted to build the wall, lock up Hillary. He had all the lines that he took from his audience. It was like he understood the people who have been Republican didn't give a crap about the stuff the way they defined it, which is just stuff to serve the interests of the donors of the Republican Party who wanted tax breaks and all that junk. Uh, they wanted red meat. They wanted hate. And he gave them that. And that sort of all the candidates who are saying, well, Donald Trump is it talking about balancing the budget? Well, they all got killed. No one voted for Jeb Bush or Chris Christie. No one cared about Christy Whitman, any of those people. And Trump sort of showed that underneath what had been developing the Republican Party in the voting base was a palpable anger uh, that could be harnessed. And that's what people really cared about. Because those voters were never getting anything from the government in the first place. They have, you know, most Americans, and this is, makes this unusual compared to most European countries, the federal government has never done much for them. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's a military operation, uh, and it does some other stuff. But you know, if you go to most places in, in Europe, including Britain, but especially Northern Europe, but not exclusively, you know, you pay taxes and you get you know unbelievable services from your government: health care, free college education, um, you know, child care for your kids. Uh, you have great mass transit. I mean, you get all this stuff you don't have to pay for because you have a government that. There's a modern system of governance, so you, you know, you get that stuff in your, as a result of your tax dollars. Well, Americans never get that. That's off off the table. You aren't allowed to get that stuff here. So, you know, people who vote don't get much. It's understandable you lose interest in government if you don't get anything from it. It's just sort of a show. And so, a lot of Trump voters, I think, were just happy they finally had a candidate who fed their anger, their biases, their passions. They didn't expect him to do anything, and he didn't do anything really. They just, they love the show. And uh, that show is, uh, you know, increasingly generated into, into, I think, fascism. And has increasingly conquered one of our two political parties. It's almost impossible to displace uh, an American political party. So we're, we're in deep trouble as a result. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so you were, ba you, you were mentioning, you know, the, the, the Trump's sort of entertainment factor and like, how that creates a, I mean, obviously, you know, um, a lot of these major, you know, cable news networks have an incentive to shift the Overton window to the right because, you know, they're rich elites and they benefit from tax cuts and things like that. But what's the, the other perverse incentive is the fact that sort of Trump is entertaining and the fact that that also boosts our viewership. So how do you regulate and like, um, overcome that perverse incentive uh what can be done in the u.s to move it towards a place where the media trust is higher so actually finland is ranked highest on the poll with 65 percent media trust so what can what can you know obviously it's very difficult to bring about change with all the lobbying and stuff in congress um but what can be done to move the u.s closer to finland well, in my area, the area we're talking about today, um, you know, the you look at countries like Finland or Norway, where my wife's from, 
and where I spent a lot of time. I'm usually there once a year uh, for the last 30 some years. Uh, a country like Norway, which is ranked by the Economist in its democracy index every year now, is the number one democracy in the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you discover about Norway is they actually have a lot of public money that pays for journalism. They don't just leave it to some mythical free market and say, oh, you rich guys figure out how to inform us about our democracy, your corporations. Uh, they spend uh, either through news on public broadcasting uh, or uh, actually subsidizing a whole range of newspapers in the country so they have diverse viewpoints. You know, they've got socialist papers, left-wing papers that wouldn't exist except for public funding. And that's true on the right as well. They, this, they basically bankroll these newspapers. Uh, and then you get a, a country with an informed population that's got all this stuff to read, mm -hmm. uh, to look at, to consume. So that's one thing we could do. In fact, if the United States spent on journalism, roughly what Norway spends at a per capita level, what Norway spends uh, on public media and uh, supporting diverse views in newspapers, we'd have to spend around $40 billion a year in the United States, 40 billion. Um, and if we did that, we just allocated all that money across the country to communities evenly by the number of people and said, this money is gonna go for daily local journalism in your county, $40 billion. We could have the greatest news local journalism in the history of the world. But the problem we have is that if it's commercial, it won't take off. There's no commercial market. Why should the government pay for commercial people? Why, that's just corporate, this is welfare. Uh, and that's not appropriate. Um, so it's gotta be nonprofit. It's gotta be non-commercial. It's gotta be uh, local. Uh, but that's the sort of solution. I mean, it's, there's no mystery about that. It's gonna take, the market is abandoned journalism everywhere, especially locally. It's gonna take public money, bankrolling, independent local competitive media uh, and that's that's the solution there's there's i've never seen any other one if we think we're going to ever get anywhere out of this quicksand we're in right now uh, with this media or news deserts i don't know what they're thinking i think the people think well yeah i've got facebook dude um you know i'm, I'm covered they're, they're taking care of me i think we've learned that you know that fantasy from 20 years ago was not a very good fantasy then now it's a nightmare Mm -hmm. And what about the role of new media? So, for example, a lot of progressive, uh, you know, reporters these days are taking to platforms like YouTube to in to sort of inform viewers about uh, American politics from a progressive angle. Do you think um, that's a viable option going well, forward, no, or would it have to be public funding? Um, well, <laughs> whoa. Is YouTube paying them? Is yeah. YouTube, hey, here's $100,000 a year, pal. Uh, I want to see your coverage of the politics of Providence, Rhode Island. Who's getting that? Well, it's not, it's not specifically local news. It's more just pro, uh, progressive news networks covering. So how many people content. are getting these 100K jobs from YouTube to do that? Uh, I don't, I mean, it's actually very blurry. Like YouTube doesn't tell you a lot about how it pays its content makers. It's well, more per view than anything else. Yeah, believe me, no one's making, you know, YouTube corporations and I, Google's not saying, hey, Michael, you're a good guy. Here's 100K, just tell us, tell us the scene as you see it. Right. Not happening. Um, the technologies are gonna be used. Everything's gonna be digital. I mean, it lowers cost dramatically at every level. It allows 
tools for doing journalism that are unimaginably good. Mm-hmm. That's not the issue. Um, it's not going to be printing something up on a piece of paper and handing it to grandma. Uh, those days are, as soon as grandma's gone, those days are probably permanently over. Mm-hmm. But um, the problem is, especially if you want real journalism, you got to pay real reporters. We still don't have robots that can do what humans do. And when we have robots that can do our journalism, we probably can have robots that can do our living for us too. They can do the whole thing. We'll be completely superfluous. For the time being, we need to have human beings competing in newsrooms covering uh, really where the the local areas in the country. And that percolates up to the national news. It grows out of this burst of energy around the country. Um, And short of that, um, I mean, right now, and I've been on the board of countless uh, media groups, nonprofit groups, they're all dying. Are you kidding? They're starving to death. There's no money. They're just, you know, they, they pray there's some rich liberal who's going to give them a check. That's their only hope of survival. Uh, that's no way for, let our military try that for a while and give them their budget to people to do journalism. Let's, let's do a flip-flop and then see how that works and see if the military says, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, thank you. We'll just get a bake sale now see if we can raise $50 to pay for our new nukes. No, it's clearly, I'm being ludicrous, but it is, it, it's, Journalism is a little too seriously to consign to like uh, the bargain basement bin uh, of the of the budget or the country. Uh, we see what it's like without journalism. Look around. I mean, look what's taking place in this country. The ignorance, the palpable ignorance, the propaganda and sewage that have gained currency that are laughably absurd. I mean, and that's exactly what you get in a society without journalism. And so it's mission critical to uh, return to journalism through aggressively using the sort of policies the most advanced democracies use. Now I should add to that, when you look at places like Finland and Norway, and it's not just that Britain actually is much better than the United States in this regard, or Canada for countries that are in the Anglo tradition. Uh, Germany, much more so, ironically given its history, it blows us out of the water. To no small extent, because in 1945 in the um, uh, occupation of Germany by the Allies. They went so far to try to eliminate fascist influence in Germany. They set up a much better media system than we have here because uh, of their concerns about the same thing in Japan. Um, both countries, they took the threat of fascism seriously in the construction of their press and broadcasting systems. So if you look at those countries, they spend a lot of money uh, on all sorts of public media, supporting diverse uh, independent media. And what's interesting, in America, we're told if there's any government involvement in journalism, then you're going to have, you know, uh, the government censorship, government control over the content. You're going to be living in an Orwellian world, uh, a nightmare world. But what's interesting, if you look at all the surveys of what countries have the best free press systems, the most critical journalism of the government, uh, that do the feistiest, they have the broadest range of critical journalism. It's invariably Finland and Norway and Germany. And guess who's way down at the bottom? The United States with all its hot air. Mm. Way down at the bottom. Like, I think it's in the Reporter Without Borders survey for this year, it's 44th or 45th in the world in terms of having a, a critical journalism. Mm. I mean, in, up at top are all the countries that spend a lot of money on journalism. Well, that's what you would expect in a democracy. Right. If a dictator, if you know Saudi Arabia spends that sort of money on on journalism, yeah, it's going to be pure propaganda, you know, it's because it's a dictatorship. But when democracies do that, you can 
have a healthy journalism in our democracy has public money like we have healthy higher education that comes with public money. So that's the policy issue we have to get to. And I'll add one thing to this, uh, Michael. Something I doubt you've learned, maybe you have, maybe Brown is some great professor um, who covers this, but um, the, the era of commercial for-profit journalism in the United States really is the late 19th and 20th century when advertising emerged really in the, uh, to, to provide the resources for newspapers. For the first 80 or 100 years of American history, we had the most prolific press system in the world. When um, uh, Tocqueville came to the United States to write Democracy in America in the 1830s, he was stunned uh, by the number of newspapers. He said, everywhere you go, people are starting newspapers. This is unbelievable country. There's everywhere you go, there's newspapers. People are reading them and talking about them. Well, you know, they didn't have much advertising in them. How could they survive? Well, the reason was that the United States Post Office was created, it's in the Constitution, primarily to be the distribution arm of American newspapers. And for the first century of American history, all American newspapers pretty much were delivered by the post office virtually for free. Mm. They wanted to make it really easy. So if you start a newspaper, you didn't have to deal with your distribution costs. You just hauled them down to the post office, they distributed them for you. Right. Uh, in major cities like a Boston or a Baltimore, postal delivery was three times a day, sometimes seven days a week. I mean, it, this, it wasn't like today where you know, they've got it rigged with you get your mail four weeks after you send it. It was like that day you got the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And that was the reason it had it. 90, over 90% of the weighted traffic of the post office of the first century of American history was newspapers. Over two-thirds of the actual units they mailed were newspapers. So that was public funding. That's, that was a huge public investment to give us newspapers, and it was understood that way. So, so that's the real American history. Uh, and the commercial system replaced that, and it looked like it was going fine. Everyone's getting rich. Everyone's happy. Now the commercial system's dead. Well, we've got a tradition to go back to. That's the one we should look at. That's the solution to the problem. Mm. And that's, as far as I can tell, I haven't seen anyone else with a solution. Hoping some dude on YouTube can cr cover everything for us on his free time. That's not, that's not working. We see, we see what that looks like. We're living that experience, and it's a nightmare. Right. And so I guess... Um... If we shift more to talk about uh, the way that corporate media um, represents the left or the you know American American progressive movement, um, what do, do you think it's accurate to say that corporate media has a perverse incentive in this case because you know progressive reforms like you know Medicare for all um, like raising the minimum wage they're extremely popular. But news networks cover them uh, in a way that actually makes people afraid of the of the reform and presents it as sort of very radical, impossible. Um, so, it, is that a do you think that's a perverse incentive? Like, uh, how would you describe uh, that coverage and the way that it's being framed? Um. Well, I think your assessment's correct. I mean, and this goes back to what we talked about at the outset, which is, you know, and now we're talking basically, we're going back to, you know, New York Times and then MSNBC and CNN on one side and Fox News and the right wing and that crowd on the other side. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not talking about 200 newspapers. There aren't 200 newspapers that do anything. I mean, uh, so we're talking about a very small number of people 
uh, that influence public opinion, uh, that are sort of a stand-in for a democratic press. And, um, you know, we talked about the outset, I think basically the New York Times, MSNBC and CNN are to their credit, alarmed by the fascist side of what the Republican Party's become. And I think that has accelerated their departure from playing both sides. It used to be pre-Trump, you would see conservative Republic or Republicans, they're all conservative. You would see Republicans on the balance panels on those shows. Uh, increasingly, once it became a full throttle fascist party with no respect for the truth, and just propaganda, they sort of dropped them because it was sort of a waste of time to have you know, blowhards on or just trying to blow up any conversation. Mm. Um, but it doesn't mean that they, and I think they therefore see themselves as being progressive in the best sense of the term in their mind, of you know, being for equality and democracy and all those things. But they tend to be, um, you know, they're, they're, they're still the mainstream of the Democratic Party, which remains uh, defense budget off limits, mm -hmm. You know, you can debate a war here and there, but off limits, the the massive amount of money being spent. It's just not covered, not an issue. Uh, and, and you know, other and so they're not that progressive. They're, you know, they the people, I think if the Democratic Party's heart and soul, uh, the people who have the money behind it, uh, the people at the top of it, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer in Congress, Biden and Harris in the White House, and some of their top funders basically came out full throttle for a living wage as a minimum wage. So we should have a $20 an hour bare minimum living wage and guarantee a job to everyone in America. Uh, if they're willing to work, you get a job, you're going to get paid at least that much. That would be, I think, if you took out any reference to the Democratic Party and liberals and progressives and said Donald Trump's proposing this and went to West Virginia. Trump voters say that is a great fucking idea. Uh, if you said free health care, just you know Medicare for all ages, not just when you're old, and you took out all the terminology, they say that's a great idea. And I think also MSNBC and CNN, if the mainstream of the Democratic Party started touting Medicare for all, started touting really seriously um, cutting the defense budget, they would take it seriously as a real issue. Mm -hmm. But they get their cues from, you know, what those guys are talking about, and they get their cues from their funders and powerful people. And that really handcuffs uh, their coverage. And it means people who are genuine, I mean, you know, in American electoral politics, you know, there's a handful of people who have been identified as outside that range. Bernie Sanders is probably the most famous. Uh, the squad with AOC and that, that crew is the other members. And they're seen as people that MSNBC and New York Times will sort of take seriously when they have to. But generally, um, they are on the outs. They're going to be treated like these guys are dubious. They don't really get it. They're dangerous. They don't really understand how this country works like we do. Yeah. Um, and that that's where and that's the dividing line there. And, you know, I think it's a, a fuzzy line because. As Biden currently understands and all the Pelosi understands, there's certain things that they have not supported that they need to support if they want to win an election. They're softening on some of these issues. And then suddenly I think you'll see that MSNBC and CNN will soften. 
I mean, the, once their sources start softening, they're not set on that issue. But if their sources say that's really not appropriate to have Medicare for all, they're going to stick to that as being a crazy idea. Mm. And and I mean, is the only way to make these ideas mainstream uh, to elect more progressive politicians? Because that would take, you know, a generation, essentially, to well, get the Democrats to shift like that. Well, you know, it's easy to be depressed, especially with the Republicans bringing our elections so that in the House of Representatives next time, 2022, the Republicans, the Democrats will probably have to get like over 58 percent of the vote nationally to win a majority in the House. I'm just pulling that figure from the air, but I think it's pretty close to that thanks to gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. So basically, they'd have to win what would be one of the biggest landslides in the history of any federal election just to get one seat more than the Republicans. So you hear stuff like that, and you know the Supreme Court's totally in the bag on an issue like that. There are, there are political hacks who are appointed to protect that system. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to say, you know, this is hopeless. This is really, it's going to take a generation. The country's going to have to completely fall apart before anyone's going to do anything. Yeah. It's easy to feel that way, and there are times I feel that way. But I would say. Uh, one of the benefits of age is that what I, what's never ceases to amaze me is how quickly things change. And you could never see it in advance. And there's a story that lives with me, and I'll tell you this because it was such, it's, it's worth keeping in mind. Nelson Mandela um, was the uh, head of the ANC in South Africa who was imprisoned at Robbins Island Prison and other places for all the 60s, 70s, and 80s until he was finally released. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine, a friend, a professor on my committee at the University of Washington was a South African, a white South African, whose family was active with the ANC, Mandela's group. They were anti-apartheid. Uh, and he stayed in close touch with the anti-apartheid movement back during the apartheid era. And I went to see him in 1988, right before I was going to move to Madison, where I got my job. And uh, he was very sad and depressed. I said, what's going on? Why, what's the problem? Because he normally wasn't like that. He said, well, I've just been talking to my comrades in South Africa, and they say it's absolutely hopeless. We're never going to have democracy or justice uh, or equality in South Africa. It's, the, the, the white minority is entrenched. Their party, the Afrikaners, refuses to negotiate. They will never give up power. It's pretty much hopeless. And later on, I would talk, uh, to other South African activists who said that's exactly how we felt too at that time. That was the consensus. Give up, Pop. Just move to America if you can get out of the country. Move anywhere. Um, well, two years later, Nelson Mandela is is out. Oh, the other thing he said is they said any change in South Africa is going to require unbelievable violence. Millions of people will die because it's the power is so entrenched. Um, two years later. Um, the apartheid government is over. It's ended. Nelson Mandela is released from prison, as, along with all the other political prisoners. And shortly thereafter, he's elected president of South Africa. And in 1988, that would have been, someone would have been, thought you were on major drugs to speculate that could even happen in 20 or 20 years. Mm. It happened within a few years. And the moral of that story is that, you know, it's impossible. Things you can't predict what's going to happen down the road. I mean, even the most brilliant people can say, "Here's some of the possibilities. These are problems. These are strengths." 
but things come out of the blue and and uh, we live in such a dynamic time there's so many hot variables uh, in our in our, globally and in our society um, that we have to the chances that there the things will be dramatic and will change are great the question is what sort of change will it be and what we can do is try to prepare for that those of us who believe in democratic institutions and principles have to try to think what is that going to look like in the case of journalism where i work how do we structure journalism so that people everyone has a chance to participate and has a system that represents their interests and their needs and the good news is compared to 20 or 30 years ago this country uh, is a much more progressive country in a lot of ways that's one of the reasons why the right wing is going nuts mm. uh, because the, this is a much more progressive country bernie sanders was a marginal political figure outside of Vermont as recently as 10 years ago. Uh, in 2016, he was by unquestionably the most popular political figure in the country. Uh, and it wasn't that he changed. Nothing about Bernie has changed since 1980. I know. Mm, I mean, yeah. I know. <laughs> so the, the country's caught up with him finally. Mm. And they're still with him. Uh, on the issues he champions now are all majority issues, every single one. Uh, there are issues where the majority of people, if you, especially if you strip away the Fox News rhetoric, to say Medicare for all, uh, living wage, the vast majority of Americans, uh, child, free child care for kids, vast majority of Americans say, yeah, that's, that's, that's the way this society should be. And I'll give you one other example of that, and I know this is sort of off the record, but you know they've done research where they ask Americans, they show the income distribution in uh, a few countries. So they don't tell people what the countries are. You know, what, how much of the income the top 5%, the top 10, the top 20, on, on down the population has. Uh, and the wealth, which means your capital, which is much more concentrated at the top. And they break it down for three or four countries, one of which is the United States. And they say, here are the three or four countries, and this is how the wealth and income are broken down. Which one of these countries do you think is the United States? And invariably, Americans pick the country that is Sweden. They, pick, they think we're much more egalitarian than we are. Mm. Uh, and they just say, they can't believe that that's Sweden and we're way over here. They think that's like so, some Saudi Arabia or yeah. some like total prison camp, mm. uh, you know, where the family owns everything. Um, so Bernie is, in his case, you know, he understands that if you can get around the framers and talk directly to people, there's a tremendous wellspring of support for popular uh, politics and democratic politics in this country. This is not a right-wing country, but the right wing has done a masterful job of um, making that conversation harder and harder to have. Mm -hmm. uh, so increasingly, it's their their troops are only being exposed to their sort of propaganda. Right. I actually wanted to ask you also about. Uh your uh organization free press um i have like the mission statement here um uh right so i just want to get your thoughts on so it says um we believe that positive social change racial justice and meaningful engagement in public life require equitable access to technology diverse and independent ownership of media platforms and journalism that holds leaders accountable and tells people what's actually happening in their communities. So can you describe like very specifically what you mean by sort of independent ownership 
Um, and what would you need to do to create a journalism platform that actually holds, you know, the wealthy accountable without getting their involvement? Um, I should first, you know, I, I co-founded Free Press um, 19 years ago, 18 or 19 years ago with uh, two other people. And I was president of the board for the first six, seven years of its history, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very active in it then, uh, during the, that era. And I was staying on the board for a couple more years, and I've been emeritus now for several years. And while I've worked with Free Press on certain issues, and I'm very close to one of the people there, um, I'm not in any position to speak for the group and what they are doing. Um, okay. They might agree with some of what I've been saying here today. Some of them might not agree. Uh, so, I mean, I should make that clear. Uh, I don't speak for them. We started Free Press for a basic reason. We saw that the media communication system in this country, including the internet, um, was created with public subsidies, and it was created based on all sorts of public policies that were enacted by Congress and the Federal Communications Commission and other agencies, but they were had almost no public participation in how they were made. They were made behind closed doors by very wealthy special interests. And the whole point of free press was to bring the public into that room mm-hmm. so the public can understand what's going on behind those closed doors and participate. And there were lots of other groups doing, trying to do that in their own way. I think what our, our difference was that we really were interested in making it a mass movement. We understood we had to have numbers. We had a point that said there's a million people who agree with us. You know, here are the people who are willing to march with us and, right. and show their support. It's not just, it's not just insiders trying to win a debating contest with the guy from Comcast. Um, and we've had some luck, and I'm really proud of the group. They're doing some great stuff. And when I think going back then to things like independent ownership, you know, it used to be, and it still is in some industries, that monopoly control of industries was really a concern. So you had uh, one company that, like Gannett or Knight Ritter, that would own 50, 100, 200 radio, uh, television newspapers, and would own them in all these cities. And they wouldn't even, they couldn't, the people who ran the company couldn't even name them. I mean, they just, they were controlling this vast empire. Mm-hmm. And it seems, you know, a more rational thing is to have a different owner in every city who's actually maybe lives there, you know, and I mean, these newspapers could all survive financially in those days because they had advertising. They'd all still be really lucrative. But at least, you know, the people who are running it would be based there. They, they wouldn't be funneling their profits to the Caymans or wherever these guys go. Um, and so that sort of thing is one of the issues. And that's still that sort of principle of having more owners and independent owners in some industries still very much holds. In journalism, it's irrelevant now because no one's made... In journalism, the capitalist class has abandoned journalism. They don't have given up. There's, they're, they're jumping ship. Um, and so it, it's, it, they're trying to recreate a commercial system is simply not going to work. There we have to actually do uh, some sort of plan to develop nonprofit local journalism, independent, competitive journalism. We have three, four different newsrooms well-funded in a community like Providence, covering Providence. Thanks for listening to the second episode of the series. If you like this episode, please be sure to follow the Brown Political Review podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Andrea Grisold, professor of economics at the University of Vienna, about how economic inequality impacts media coverage. See you next time.
Mm. Right. Okay. Um, well, I think those are all the questions that I had for you uh, in the interview, and we're like already past the hour mark, so uh, 